Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room to listen to all of our podcast episodes without any ads. You get access to our video episodes, our bonus episodes, and even more exclusive content, including merchandise. It only starts at $5 a month, so head on over to our Patreon. Again, it's patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom. And while you're at it, you know what would be such a help is if you could rate and review the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And make sure that you follow us and share out our podcast to all of your friends. It truly does help. And I want to thank you all. It means so much that you're listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Certainly at the the, the highest level, the Ivy Leagues and the and, and the major state schools, there's they're they're always going to be tenured positions. But in a lot of other places, uh, there are going to be very few tenured positions, if there will be if there will be any at all. So let me throw it back to you. You've just gotten your PhD at a time when um, academia in general is under fire, but the humanities in particular are reeling. You might even say that they are in freefall. I know in conversations that we've had, you've talked, you've seen yourself more as a uh, in the public humanities than as getting a tenure track position. Is that still the case? And where do you see yourself in five years, 10 years? What do you think the profession is going to look like? And where would you like to be? Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities, mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. And recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture. In the spring, I had on Drs. Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions. And how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens, and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So what better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all, all, 
Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby. This is such a special, truly full circle moment because I am joined with someone who I just deeply admire, a mentor of mine from Kane University. All of you have ho hopefully heard, if not, you should. I had Dr. Jambalakian on last year, but I am joined with Dr. John Colin Gruzer, who will talk about the classes that I took with him. But for all of you out there, he's all things in my mind, a post scholar, but he's doing a lot right now with animal studies, which I can't wait to hear about. He is a research scholar in the natural history collections at Sam Houston State University. He is an emeritus professor from Kane University. That's how I got to know him. And he got his PhD in English from University of Wisconsin-Madison has written a lot, and I'm sure he'll open up about what he's currently writing. He's written a lot about Poe, race, gender, American detective fiction, uh, Pauline Hopkins. So, John, it just means so much for you to be here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Well, it's 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 great to be here, and and uh, you know, I I feel the same way about you. I mean, you have really made us all so proud. We don't have, uh, uh, there are not a lot of Kane students who've gone on to, to get PhDs and you really have, uh, have, have done us proud in, in so many ways. So uh, it, it's great to be here. Well, I think first we had talked about this in an email exchange and I think it's just so prescient on our mind right now, especially so many listening, they're gonna see the title of this episode, know it's about. PhD experience or reflections on academia. So I'm sure so many listening are academic adjacent. Maybe they're looking to go into a PhD program. So many reach out to me, John, I'm sure like yourself, and they say, okay, should I go into a PhD in the humanities? And I give them very honest, an honest response, which is do it for your passion. Like I went into my PhD knowing the job market in academia is not well, and um, I feel like a bandage has been put on an oozing wound in a way. Sorry to be so brutal. Um, it's almost Civil War imagery here, but to do it for the love of, like, I love the humanities and I love literature. I mean, when you went into your PhD in English, was it that passion? Like, was it the same sort of awareness or was it different because of the job market? Well, this may be a long answer, but I, I feel sorry for um, uh, for college students today and for students who go on to graduate work today because um, there, there's such there's so much pressure now to get a job and to be able to, to be able to support yourself. Um, just, just two quick facts here. When I was, um, during my senior year of college at the University of Notre Dame, I could make enough money during the summer to pay for one semester of my tuition. Today, I don't think most students can make enough money during the summer to pay for their books, much less for one semester. 
The other thing, there's so much talk today about student loans. Well, back when, I mean, I had, I had student loans. Fortunately, I didn't have a lot of them because my, my parents were in a position to, to pay for most of my education, but also I was able to pay for some of it myself, as I said. But back then, the um, prime rate was quite high, um, over six, seven, maybe maybe 8%. But the government loans were much lower in terms of their interest percentage. They were about 2%. So the government was really helping students out back then. The situation with so many students who, who either have student loans that they're paying off or who are getting student loans today is that many of those loans are predatory and they are paying more than the prime interest rates. And that's why you hear about these people who have $40,000 or more in debt. And, you know, just they're working, they're trying to pay them off, but they may, you know, they may retire and still have student loans. I mean, that's, 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 a, that's a fact for, for some people. So it's just, it's just a different world. And I am gonna to get to your question, so after I graduated with a degree in English and in German, because I spent a year abroad at the University of Notre Dame, I really didn't know what I, I wanted to do. So I was working. Um, my longtime girlfriend, who became my wife, was, was here in New Jersey. And um, she, was, she got a job right away, uh, a teaching job, and she was taking courses in education at Seton Hall. So I came out over Thanksgiving and I talked to the head of the, 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 the graduate studies at Seton Hall University, which is in South Orange, New Jersey, about maybe getting into their program. And the, the director, Rose Gallo, uh, said, you know, we'd love to have you. Um, why don't you apply for the fall? Well, it, it turns out that they had an opening in January. So then I, I started working on a master's degree. So in, in 18 months, I, I, I got an MA in English. Uh, I worked in a writing center, but I ta taught on the college level for the first time. And I absolutely loved it. And I realized based on that experience that if I wanted to do this for the rest of my life, I would need to get a PhD. So I did work at Seton Hall and I actually worked at Kane, um, where I wound up uh, having a full-time job uh, after I graduated with an MA. Now, back then, Kane paid $875 for a course if you were an adjunct. So now it's up to over $5,000. But, um, you know, again, it shows, it, it shows how, how things have changed. So um, my choices were either Rutgers or the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I went with Madison because um, the graduate students were unionized and um, I could make about $15,000 a year which was very good back then. Rutgers was only offering about seven thousand dollars, and this and, and the cost of living was was much higher here. So that's why I decided to go to Madison, got my PhD. I wasn't really sure when I started what I would do uh, as a, as a scholar, uh, but it turns out that that has been my real love. That that I, I really enjoy doing research. I really enjoy uh, writing books and articles. Um, but I've always seen um, my teaching and my research and my writing as complementary activities. In fact, you know, my, my very first peer-reviewed article was some was was based on something that I'd done with uh, with students in the classroom, and 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 for the most part, that's often been the case. So. Um, that's what got me into this into the profession. It's been in many ways wonderful. Um, 
but it's it's a grind. And uh, for most of my career, I was teaching a four four load and you know, doing a doing a lot of scholarship. I typically taught um, in in the summer as well. So it 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 it, it does it, it does kind of it, it does kind of uh, wear on wear on you. And I mean that that you you hear about Professor Burnout, and I, I think it's I, I think it's true. Um, you know, and 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 what I see happening is uh, so many fewer tenure track positions, so many people teaching four four five five loads, um, and and it, and and um, I think unfortunately this trend is just going to continue. Um, you know, certainly at the 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 highest level, the Ivy Leagues and the and and the major state schools, there's there there are always going to be tenured positions. But in a lot of other places, uh, there are going to be very few tenured positions, if there will be, if there will be any at all. So let me throw it back to you. You've just gotten your PhD at a time when um, academia in general is under fire, but the humanities in particular are reeling. You might even say that they are in freefall. I know in conversations that we've had, you've talked, you've seen yourself more as a uh, in the public humanities than as getting a tenure track position. Is that still the case? And where do you see yourself in five years, 10 years? What do you think the profession is going to look like? And where would you like to be? Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an exciting ITBR episode to talk to you about one of our sponsors, the Gay and Lesbian Review. Discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture with a subscription to the Gay and Lesbian Review, a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and our popular art memo column. Each issue of the Gay and Lesbian Review brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme, and it brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, but you will definitely find articles about online dating, like using Grindr as a social phenomenon, or even the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Did you know that I've actually interviewed three gay and lesbian review contributors? Make sure you listen to my Ignacio Darnod Breaking the Gay Code in Art episode, where Ignacio explains that Key artistic figures like Michelangelo, Donatello, Thomas Eakins, J.C. Leyendecker, and Thomas Finlan all have really explicit homoerotic artwork. And then head on over to the next episode where I talk with Dr. Vernon Rosario about LGBTQ psychiatry and how homosexuality got depathologized. And our most recent episode was with the Gay and Lesbian Review's literary editor, Martha E. Stone, and she talks about what LGBTQ literature you should be reading this summer, and also how to become a contributing writer and a reviewer for the Gay and Lesbian Review. To subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter the promo code 
ITBR to receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. And as an added bonus, you also receive online access to all of the Gay and Lesbian Reviews archived issues. All of them. Okay, enjoy your reading, everyone. Yeah, thank you for that, John. Um, well, and I always want to call you Dr. Grazer. So I'm like getting used to the John. But I would say that like what we're doing right now, these conversations, the work that I do in the podcast, like I've for three years now, I've had the podcast and I've had the pleasure and I'll continue to have up to four to five interns from the Stony Brook English Department have worked on this podcast every semester. I get to be with Broadway performers, uh, theater scholars, literary academics, pop culture personalities I've had on reality TV stars. Um, it just keeps expanding. I have on a lot of best-selling authors and there's something in my gut and intuition that I keep collaborating with fellow media personalities. And I actually see myself as an academic um, media figure. And I think that this is the new changing landscape that I'm a part of. Like I'm trying to create my new uh, image, which is what it means to have a PhD in English. I don't know if you know the musical Avenue Q, but um, okay. They start off with this song about what do you do with a BA, BA in English? But I always like to think, turn it into the PhD in English <laughs> because I like you. I went in. I mean, I went in though in 2014. I ended at Kane and I went right from my bachelor's, which again is not, I think, like I've learned in PhD programs, maybe 30% have come right from their bachelor's. I'm not sure the exact, but more have come from a master's. And um, definitely, I was not kidding myself. I knew the landscape. I had talked to you. I talked to Jan. I talked to so many at Kane. who we were, I was very aware of the aspect, the probable outcome that a tenure track position would not be waiting, that I probably would be applying for visiting professor positions, instructor positions. I've applied now to over, I think it's been seven to eight colleges for instructor positions slash, um, even adjunct positions. And for a recent instructor position, I think there were 400 applications. All of us had PhDs. Um, these would have been the candidates who 20 years ago would have been applying for tenure positions. And even as you know, John, adjuncts, the majority now have PhDs. And it's just become... What I love about the prof profession, though, is working for the literary magazine, which I know you've been a part of, but the Watch Hung Review based around Seton Hall University. I'm an associate editor there. I've released my Whitman and Queer Theory article uh, with Gail Publishing. I actually am at work now on a queer drama article that I can't talk too much about, but I do have another article in the works. And I love the research. I love writing and publishing conferences. I love going to conferences. I love the Poe conference we were at. Um, there's another queer history conference that I'm looking into in Los Angeles. And I love teaching so much. 
And, but I actually like to answer your question. I actually find what I'm doing with the podcast and media we're in need of, like we are in need of experts in the humanities opening up to the public. Like sometimes my favorite conversations are what happens on social media. Like I do a lot on TikTok and on Instagram and I'll get comments about, oh, that's what happens in academia or, oh, I didn't think about what it means to be a philosopher who studies sports. Like that was a recent episode of mine. And I'm friends with a lot in the fitness industry because of working out and I have a lot of trainer friends and they start to realize that that's what happens in a university. Like these conversations aren't just in one specific arena that like to me, that's what the university is an emblem of. It's supposed to be higher thinking of general everyday activities and arts and culture. So like for me, what we're doing here is what I wanted to do with a PhD, which was have arts and culture high slash lowbrow, even though I don't believe in lowbrow, but you know, high art and more general public art meet together. And, you know, whether it's necessity, which it is because of the job market, it's also something I'm truly passionate about. And I feel like though my other traditional quote unquote academic work is almost in a way just supporting, like it all supports this public profile that I've created. Yeah. So I, I just to follow up. So how do you monetize that though? How do you support yourself? I mean, I love to go to conferences too, but conferences are are expensive. And if you don't have the institutional support, um, you know, and, and, and you know, is there a way, I, I mean, I guess if, if you become enough of a celebrity as, as a public um, humanities person, um, then you are going to get, you are going to get gigs at, at institutions. You will be invited to for, for lectures, but I guess that was the other part of my question. Where would you like to be in five years? Where would you like to be in 10 years? Yeah, well, I always say if a reality television producer called and said, we want to do an academic or a gaze of New York, New Jersey, I would listen to the call because um, I'm open to that type of TV exposure. But yeah, I mean, in the more grounded sense of your question, I definitely would love to be doing more public lectures. I've done a few, but like you said, a lot in academia don't even get paid. Like I wanna pull back the curtain for everyone out there, especially if they're not in academia. Um, I don't think a lot of the public knows that academics don't even really get paid on academic publishing, uh, publishing opportunities. And I mean, I was lucky I did get paid for Whitman and queer theory. And that I heard was actually uh, rare. Like I was negotiating a price and I even got paid for them to reprint my other Whitman article, which I like would talk to other academics and say, oh, how much do you usually get paid when they reprint your articles? And they said nothing. <laughs> right. So it, but I'm happy that there are more paid opportunities. Um, and I do get a few paid opportunities, but like to answer your monetized question, monetizing question, 
it's really tough um, to break through in podcasting. I mean, I get paid through ads. I get paid through um, the Gay and Lesbian Review, Broadview Press. Um, I get paid through a few sponsors we have, but it's not enough. Like, I love them all. So it's nothing against the sponsors. I love our sponsors, but it's not a full-time income at all. But it helps keep the work going. Um, but again, I see myself on five-year plan to use your question and your metaphor here. It is a five-year plan, even with this podcast, even with where it can go. Like, I would love to eventually partner or have a Sirius XM radio channel or be part of NPR. Like, it's, you want to build something that you think can continue and evolve into a collaboration with a larger organization. Like I see myself as a tentacle, not knowing yet though where the octopus is. I just know it's part of some project. Yeah. And I mean, do you find though that, um, like what's excited me is like when I've seen all of what you've published, it is that opportunity of the doors opening, right? Like once you publish in one field or one venue and they know you as, oh, okay, you write about Poe or like in my case, oh, I write about queer 19th century and specifically Whitman. Like then you start to become known for that and others in those publishing venues will reach out to you like, oh, we were thinking of doing this piece. Like, do you find that that is, it's an eventual domino effect with publishing? Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, getting back to conferences, uh, I mean, for some people, they have to pay for them uh, themselves uh, if they don't have institutional support. Um, but that is where you meet people. That is where you find out about publishing opportunities. Um, I mean, I've really been blessed um, to be able to go to so many terrific conferences over, over the years, to get to know so many terrific people, um, mainly in this country, but I've been able to travel abroad as well. And it, it, it's, it, it's really been fantastic. And um, one of my most recent projects has been, uh, what's well, actually two books, one book that was published, um, Animals in the American Classics, How Natural History Inspired um, Great Fiction, uh, which I just oh, yes. happen to have uh, the, the copy of right here, which gorgeous book has over 120 illustrations, but I edited it. Um, it was it was basically an idea I had with a, a colleague in the biology department at uh, Sam Houston State University, but because I I've gotten to know so many people through the American Literature Association, I was able to write to them directly and say, "Hey, I'm I'm working on this project. Would you be able to do, Would you be willing to do uh, an essay on Washington Irving?" or on, um, you know, now I'm doing one on, on uh, I'm doing a companion volume on uh, poetry, on, on Emily Dickinson. I mean, there were some cases where I, I really didn't know too many, I didn't know uh, people who were experts um, on specific authors that I wanted to include, but I knew people who knew people. And uh, that that is has, has, that's very rewarding and and has been a lot of fun and I, I i'm sure if you haven't found it already you're going to find that if you go to conferences um regularly 
you're going to you're going to spend time with you're going to hear papers by um, the same people and and those those will be really important uh, relationships for you um, so uh, that that kind of networking is invaluable and and if, if you do have people who listen to this podcast who are looking for some advice that would be a big piece of advice is to you know choose the choose the conferences that are really relevant to your interests and and go to those and make the most of those. I love what you're saying about conferencing. And I think that what I even found when I had had that pleasure last year of being at the Poe conference with you, John, is how much it helped even further the network of who was going to be on my podcast. Like it was so exciting to have a like young scholar career type conversation. Then there was me getting to be connected with David Grevin and Paul Jones and David is in my dissertation. And I always have said to Susan, my dissertation advisor, that the podcast has actually been a bibliography for me. Like I'm so lucky that I've gotten to have on at least 10 who I use in my dissertation, scholars, queer scholars. And that community has really snowballed for me, like actually knowing queer theorists. And the podcast and networking go hand in hand. Like even publicists will reach out to me and say, oh, we know you had on so-and-so guests. What do you think about this book? And they'll send the book my way. So like, that's wonderful to be in that type of circle. So in a way, my like day-to-day -day life is actually more like a um, talk show host. It's talk show host meets academic. Like, because I am part of those communities, it's it's very Terry Gross. Like I always say, if you know Terry Gross's show on NPR, yeah. I'm almost Terry Gross, but for the younger generation. Um, like I model myself off of Terry Gross, but I also like to have unfiltered conversations and also hot button issues like what we're talking about now in academia sometimes people don't want to pull back the curtain right there's a nervousness i think especially if you have tenure i mean tenure is supposed to be secure a quote unquote like about having unfiltered opinions but i don't i am curious to ask you about how do you feel right now in terms of the pulse of being open about your thoughts. Like, do you think that tenured professors feel comfortable sharing unpopular opinions about academia or are they even more now um, writing, uh, walking this tightrope because of how much academia is shrinking or in free fall as you're calling it? Hi, everyone. This is Andrew, and I am interrupting what I know is such an exciting Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and it's hosted by Christian Garcia. Christian is joined with guest co-hosts to talk about classic cinema films that we know and love, and he analyzes them through a queer lens. So, He's talked about The Sound of Music, Alfred Hitchcock, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and recently, Hello, Dolly. 
I actually was on his first ever episode to talk about my love of The Sound of Music and playing Captain Von Trapp in my high school musical. Then I was joined with Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime and Academia, and our friend Travis Roundtree to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mary just had Christian on True Crime and Academia to talk about female poisoners, including the evil queen from Snow White and actual real life female poisoners. So Christian's podcast is the best. You must add it to your listen list. After you listen to this episode, make sure you head over to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple and Spotify. Make sure you follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And he's also on TikTok. Don't forget TikTok. Okay. I can't wait for you all to listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It And Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It. Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. And order today. Well, I I mean, I think they they are thinking twice about, uh, about what they do and what they say. Of course, it depends on what kind of a position you have and where you're located. Um, I don't know if you uh, heard about the case, and I, I may not get all the details right, but it was at Hamlin University or Hamline University in, um, in the Minneapolis area. And this woman was uh, an adjunct professor teaching an art history course, and she had informed the class at the, at the beginning that she was going to show an image, I believe, from the 14th or 15th century of the prophet Muhammad. Um, she, she knew that this, this might be upsetting to some of the students who were, uh, who were Muslim, and, and, and she was just letting them know that you know, if they didn't want uh, to attend that day, they, they were not required to. Now, this is an image that's very well known, apparently, that's been widely written about. Um, that's in a lot of that, that's in a lot of a, a lot of books. Um, in any event, um, she did show the the image and talk about it on one particular day. And then a student who wasn't a Muslim um, complained about it, and the woman lost her job. And you know she had absolutely no support from the administration. In fact, the administration um, really attacked her. Um, and um, you know that's just one of, of of many instances. But you know certainly if you're in a place like Florida right now, um, 
you know, if, if you know what's going on with the new College of Florida, where uh, which was a, a it, it still is, it's a public liberal arts institution, but it was one of the few places where um, uh, students who were students who were gay, uh, students who um, had different opinions, uh, felt welcome and felt comfortable. But what uh, the governor DeSantis has done is he's completely replaced the editorial board. He's got a new president and he's trying to recreate it as the, uh, the kind of the Southern version of the very conservative, I think it's Hillsdale College in, in Michigan. Um, and um, so it's, uh, it, it, it's, it, you know, if, if you work there, um, I don't think you would feel you would feel secure at all uh, if you broach certain subjects, given given what's happening with the administration there and with the uh, the, the board that now now exists. Um, so it's um, yeah, uh, tenure is 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 supposed to be about academic freedom, but I don't think that there is the kind of academic freedom that tenure was designed to protect these days. Yeah, well, even Stony Brook, I can talk about it now because I have um, finished my PhD at Stony Brook, but there was a case that happened. I'm not sure if you knew about this, just being in the Northeast, that a professor, um, and I'm going to remain vague just because actually I don't want to get the you know facts of the affiliation of the department wrong, but the professor had just questioned about mental health and um there was an issue there was an issue on long island where a someone who was might have had a mental health um episode was arrested by the police and i think this professor basically just questioned on social media it was on the stony brook stony brook had posted about um the police officers um like that, oh, the police were being treated at the hospital, at Stony Brook Hospital. And um, the professor then on her own personal account commented under the Stony Brook Instagram and just said, you know, were they like, did they do a mental health assessment? Or we should be thinking about like, were these police officers, are they, are police officers well-equipped with mental health training? And that was the comment. Um, but then the, um, police union on Long Island in Suffolk County, like went after this professor, like shared her personal information. And then what really shocked me was that instead of the university kind of just maintaining a neutrality or a boundary of this is academic expression, like these views don't represent us, but these the faculty have academic freedom. Instead, like said, this professor does not represent the unit, like, kind of doubled down on it being the professor's fault. And I find that, but we're seeing this time and time again, and I'm thinking, but wait, this is a public university. I thought public universities, that academic freedom is the integrity and the core of a university. And it is, it's troubling. And I think there's a trend now, unfortunately, of at, and the universities, administration in universities, um, really wanting there to be academic freedom, but at the same time, it's not always seen in the messaging. So 
Yeah, well, it's I, a mixed I think, message. I think they're so they're so worried about their public image that uh, they 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 sometimes put the, their public image before you know the, the concept of academic freedom, which of course you and I believe should come first. Yeah, well, and especially like the work that I and so many, and I know you know the scholars. Like I'm thinking even of David Grevin's work, but we do so much with eroticism, and you know whether it be with my work in 19th century, but I know porn study scholars, they've been on this podcast. And that's why I love having these conversations because it runs the gamut. Like I'm in control of the content, right? Like I'm not going to a board to have the syllabus reviewed or they're going to question, why are you talking about, you know, why did you have Marianne Williamson on your show, Andrew, who's running as a Democrat for president? It's like, well, no, I want them to air their thoughts and then you all out there listening get to make your opinion like that's my pedagogy mindset is everyone out there it's not on me to make the judgment call of a guest it's on the audience to weigh in analyze and in a way this is a type of college classroom john for the public and i do question though like if i decided to show a nude painting is that going to be objected to in the classroom like and you know, how about if you try to show a porn clip, but your class, you've always been a porn scholar. I mean, I think it really now just depends on what state you're in and the objections that the, I guess it depends on whether they're you're a new hire or not. I mean, I'm not sure if that's the case, but I would assume like if you had always been doing like, erotic cutting edge work in the humanities that you would still be able to teach that unless they're starting to change the courses you teach well just a, just a couple things come to mind um uh, at kane I, I i created a course in detective fiction and i and i typically would show film versions of some of the works that, that we have done and so um I was showing the uh, the film version of uh, Devil in a Blue Dress, uh, Walter Mosley's novel. And there's a scene in that novel where Easy, who's the detective, um, has sex with well, a good friend of his um, girlfriend who's passed out in the next room. Now, in the film, there's nothing, ex there's, there's no explicit nudity, but they're clearly making love, you know, the, the sounds are being made. And um, I was told by a student uh, afterwards that um, she was, she was made to feel very uncomfortable uh, by that. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, I, I realized that I, that I, I, I needed to, uh, to, to prepare the students more. And, and in fact, I have not shown that film since. Um, so I mean, I, I mean, things have changed. I, I, for years, I used to teach Huckleberry Finn, uh, a class that I designed um, at Kane, uh, which became an English major requirement. Critical approaches to literature. The the problem we had was um, students were getting to the capstone course, course senior seminar, and they really had had they had not been properly introduced to literary theory, to critical approaches. So as a department, we decided to create this course. I wrote it up. And right around that time, um, there was, Bedford's had, had issued this um, 
this this series which put things into uh, into their historical and and literary um, and and uh, you know gender uh, and racial context, um, but I I don't think I will ever teach uh, Huckleberry Finn in a in in a classroom setting again. Maybe on the graduate level, if if, if that becomes an opportunity, um, but. What was happening was very unfair at times to some of the African American students. That because you know typically it came the majority of the students at least in an English class would be would be white students or white and Hispanic. There would be typically a smaller number of, of black students. And as we were discussing these issues, and of course the N word is used over two hundred times, very thin, but also some of these other issues related to uh, to uh, to race in Huckleberry Finn, there was often this moment where the white students would just turn to the black students and say, well, what do you think about it? And it just, it just wasn't fair. And, and, and it actually, I wasn't, I, I wasn't a good teacher in, 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 in allowing those situations to develop. So I think I've learned something. I think society has changed. I think I've learned something. Um, but I, but having said that, I also think that that it's that it sometimes goes too far in the other direction. I don't know if you're familiar with what happened at Cornell, where uh, the students basically were demanding um, all sorts of trigger warnings on uh, certain things that were taught, and the president stood up and said, "No, we're not going to do that." You know, this is this is a an institution where students are exposed to things, to new ideas, to things that may make them uncomfortable, but that's part of what higher education is all about. And I'm, again, I'm, I'm badly paraphrasing, but that's my understanding of what the president said. Well, first, can I applaud you, not only for the critical approaches course, which was incredible and um, really well-trained me for my literary theory seminar when I entered Stony Brook's PhD, but also for you to have that self-awareness, John, of like giving this model of wait my teaching method might not was not right then or i've learned from it and evolved i think is just so beautifully stated and something refreshing in academia because i look back now on um the classes that i've taught over the i think it was seven years at stony brook and i realized oh wow i have evolved like okay maybe i wouldn't introduce a subjects like that. Or I even remember when I taught film studies, I taught 20 years a slave. And I like had then learned enough about, okay, like you said, introducing the content beforehand, because I knew it was going to be a really, um, it was going to be such possibly um, triggering. And again, I don't like using the word triggering in this context is fraught with the whole discussion of trigger warning, but that it was going to deal with slavery and was going to be very shocking material. But like you said, there's a way to teach shocking material. Like even what you're talking about with Huckleberry Finn, I've learned um, Whitman had racist statements and I opened up about that in my first article called Talking Back to Walt Whitman. And my whole philosophy on it, and I've learned from other scholars, is to teach Whitman with a writer of color from the period. Like, I mean, I specifically look to um, 
even Heger's daughter by Pauline Hopkins. I actually learned that text from you and then I taught it and it really did resonate. And it was such an interesting novel to teach, but to show students that even Harriet Jacobs narrative, Frederick Douglass, I mean, there's a long category of um, black American authors of the 19th century, but to do it as a, not do it in isolation, right? Like I think if we're going to be teaching something so possibly controversial, controversial, instead of just throwing it out there, like I would never just put up a music video and not introduce it and all of a sudden, it's just epithets and cursing and like for shock value. Like I'm not in the business of shocking just to see the students response, um, but to teach it in its cultural context. And I love like when you taught Afro-American women writers, again too, I think was the title Afro-American because it, it encompassed writers, like women writers, not just from America, but from even the Caribbean and other areas? Well, I mean, the title was African-American women writers, um, but that may have been something that was changed. It, it may have been black women writers and then changed to, to African-American. But I but it, I think it was up to the professor if, if the professor wanted to teach um, Caribbean writers as, as well as writers who were, were based in the United States, I think that that would have been just just fine. Um, but yeah, I know that you mentioned um, in in your email to me, um, you know, the fact that when I taught that course, I was very upfront about here I am, I'm a white man, uh, a white male uh, teaching a course on African American women writers, and you know, I I, I try to explain that you know, this is this is a big part of my of my scholarship um, that I that I teach it because I have great respect for it that I, I'm going to teach it from a, a literary perspective because that's that's who I am and um, I, I think that's just fair to the students and it's it's fair to me. Um, I'll tell you a story that uh, I don't think you know. Um, but I, I think the, the second or third year that I was at Kane, um, I taught that course for the first time. And I only found out that I was gonna teach it about uh, three or four days before it happened because the professor who was going to teach it, somebody named uh, Phyllis Kafka had become ill. And it was a very interesting dynamic in the class. There were about 20 students. I would say um, 14 of them were, were were, were black women, uh, three of them were, 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 uh, were black males and, and, and two of them were, were white women. And um, the first night we, I, I had every, got everybody in a circle, we kind of talked through things, I explained the course and um, one, of the, one of the black males was a member of the Nation of Islam and he just lit into me. You know, how could I possibly teach this course? You know, how as a white man could I possibly understand this writing? You know, and I listened to everything that uh, that he had to say. And then I, you know, tried to explain who I was and, and, and why this is, you know, these are texts that are important to me and that I do have a fair amount of knowledge about. But there was uh, one of the black women in the class was a little bit older and she was just kind of sitting back in her chair and she's watching the two of us, these two men, talk about all of this. And she just said, mm -hmm. you know, here you are, you two men, 
talking about you know texts by women. So in and 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 throughout the semester was it was a very very interesting dynamic because depending on how many of the black male students showed up, it affected the discussion. When there were fewer black males who showed up for the course, the the black women in the class felt fear, freer to discuss certain issues. So that that was another reason why you know I, I i was very upfront in your class and every time i teach that class about hey there's no question as to what i am um but here's the here's here's my background this is why you know i feel that that that, that i have some knowledge that i can impart to you about these texts um there was a book that came out i believe in 2006 called um white scholars, African-American texts. And um, it was an issue that I wanted to really think about and deal with. So uh, I volunteered to do a book review for it, for uh, African-American review. And that was a really useful experience for me to, to, to not only review that book, but to really sort through uh, what it means to be a white scholar and to teach these texts. I mean, I, I got a PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and um, Nellie McKay, who was the co-editor with Henry Louis Gates of the first volume or the first edition of the Norton Anthology of African-American Literature. You know, she, she was from the East Coast. She came, maybe not originally, but she'd been based in the East Coast. She went to Harvard, um, but she took to the job in Wisconsin knowing that there would not be um, a, a, a large number of, of, of black students there. But, you know, her whole position is that, you know, if we don't have, and we don't have enough black PhDs to teach this class, to teach the, the, these texts, we should train white people, you know, the right way so that they can, so they can do it, you know, so that they could do no harm in a sense. Um, and, um, you know, that, that, uh, Nellie McKay was was very influential uh, on me during my time at, at, at Wisconsin and and kind of her essay was the cornerstone of that of that volume of white scholars African American texts. Well, I definitely need to look into that text. I'm going to be doing a search, uh, John, but like the way that you I just still vividly remember that moment you almost it was like a type of subjectivity identity formation of sorts like you were doing like your own auto theory in the course when you opened up about like addressing head on head on your identity and explaining the allyship pedagogy in a way that it is allyship pedagogy and I feel the same way about like how empowering that class was I just remember how many women of color, especially black women? Um, one of my friends I'm still very close to, her name is Nadira. I remember we would talk all the time after your class and just, we would actually talk about how important it was to have these interracial conversations. And I feel the same way about sexuality that, I mean, I taught a queer 19th century course and anytime I've taught queer poetry, the students do tend to be more LGBTQ identifying, and it is very empowering to be part of that space. I mean, I'm openly gay, so I am part of the community, but at the same time, I'm so happy when I hear conversations and hear fellow scholars who 
aren't LGBTQ who I remember when you taught movie Dick John or even Poe, we read a lot of queer work or feminist work. And it was so important to be introduced to that work. Um, and like you're saying, that's the type of pedagogy that I feel is so transformative. It's very bell hooks method that I really find inspiring, which is the type of allyship. Um, I know she has a word for it that I'm not remembering, but just this way of really making everyone part of the community. Like I'll always remember when you taught Possessing the Secret of Joy by Alice Walker, and that got very heady. And there's like a bi male character and there's a lot of discussion about um, female genital mutilation. And I know how much uh, context you put around these topics. And I just want to let you know, as one of your former students, it was really powerful. It was, you really did such transformative work. And I think that's a testament to your openness and listening to building upon pedagogy instead of thinking you have all the answers to, you know, throw into every student's head. Well, thank you, Andrew. I appreciate that. Yeah. And, you know, I think that something I would love to just discuss with you is, you know, we've been talking a lot about what does it mean to have a, what do we do with a PhD right now? Or, you know, all of these different topics to teach in the course. What I would love is, you know, what do you think right now about just the field of not academia necessarily, but let's open it up to literacy. Like, do you think that as an American culture, I know it's hard to generalize, but because, you know, specifically, we both are 19th century scholars. Like, what is it about the 19th century that appealed to you? Like, why, like, what was the Poe compulsion? What was Melville's Hawthorne? Like, what, Emily Dickinson, like, what brings you to the 19th century all in your work? Well, it's interesting. You know, I really, when I was an undergraduate English major, I took almost all courses in English literature, literature from, from the United Kingdom, you know, very little, um, uh, maybe a short story class. Um, and it was, it was really when I got to, to graduate school that, you know, I suddenly realized, boy, these, these are the texts that really, that, that truly matter to me. Now, I, I you know, I, I've always had a thing for Poe, um, I don't know. I mean, one of your questions in the email was, uh, when was I first introduced to him? I'm sure it was The Raven or Annabelle Lee, or it was The Telltale Heart or Casamontiato, something short in a, in a, in a grade school textbook. Um, but I remember that I, between uh, my eighth, the, the summer of uh, after eighth grade going into high school, um, I set out to read all of Poe's tales. And my mother had a, a, a book that she had used. She was an English major in college. And it was the modern library, complete tales and poems of Edgar Allan Poe. I didn't make it all the way through that summer. I got close. Um, 
but but one of the reasons I didn't make it through is because Poe's vocabulary was just so amazing. And I was always looking up, I was always looking up words, which kind of slowed me down. But for years, I kept that, uh, I, I kept that, um, uh, that book with me because it had my mother's signature in it and, and uh, it had my pencil marks. And I used to show it to students, at least um, uh, when they would come, when they would come for, for, for class. And recently, um, during the pandemic, uh, the Post Studies Association had a Zoom forum. And uh, Richard Copley, who is um, pretty much has complete, completed now a, a new biography of Poe, uh, he, had, he, he actually had uh, two parts of how I got started with Poe. So for that, I, I went online and I bought a new copy of that book because the one that was from my mother eventually just fell apart over the years. But I bought a new copy so that I could kind of I could kind of show it off. So um, you know, Poe has has always been a constant, and uh, my you know my first peer reviewed article was was on uh, Poe story Lygia. You know, it was uh, it was looking at it in 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 relation to Edward Said's uh, concept of Orientalism. So uh, Poe's always been there. And in uh, in answer to your question, you know, what is it about Moby Dick? What it is? What is it about these nineteenth century writers? I find that the that the great texts always reward you. Whatever you whatever approach you bring to them, whatever um, theory you throw at them. They always give you something back, and 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 I, and I think that's why I like them so much. So you know, some people may, might say, you know, how can you teach these these things over and over again? Well, every time you teach them or every time you read them, they're different. You're different. They're different. You see new things. You've got a new group of students, so the classroom dynamic is different. Um, that's. Well, what about you? What what is it about you as a um, you know twenty first century openly gay scholar? What is it about these nineteenth century texts that that appeals to you? Well, I think that these texts are what it is about the nineteenth century specifically, especially like with my dissertation, I was able to finally understand and reflect right i mean that's what we hope to do in our dissertation but to understand that sexuality because the 19th century is like right in that heart of industrialization and um this is why i love both american and victorian and british literature of the 19th century so much is because shifting around gender and around what it means to define yourself sexually is really starting to drastically be reshaped with sexology and with the word even homosexual entering at the end of the 19th century. So like, John, I find that what I love about Moby Dick, what I love about the Scarlet Letter and um, Whitman and Poe is the messiness like i've always been a fan of literature that is messy like where it's not fully defined and it's not fully um spelled out for you so when it comes to sexuality i mean talk about 
ambiguity. To me, it's the 19th century because it's like the language is starting to arrive. And you can really see that in the picture of Dorian Gray. It's like, okay, there's something really erotic happening with these characters. The language is still just out of reach. Like even with Wilde himself, he hasn't gone to trial yet. And I find that truly fascinating. Um, where I love contemporary literature. I mean, actually, if I wasn't going to do 19th century, I was about to go into the Bloomsbury group with E.M. Farster and Virginia Woolf. But I now have traced out queer influence with Whitman, like how Whitman has inspired um, a queer male readership and just those interested in male homoeroticism that I can now carry my work into the modernist period. But the modernist period is just going to be very different with terminology because now we actually have authors like even Gore Vidal, who wrote The City and the Pillar, which is some have some have coined it as the first gay American novel, um, just with language. And I guess Morris could be seen as the first British gay novel, um, even though it's posthumous. Um so the language will be different, but I think what I'm happy about is this queer influence that I see and that I've articulated can be brought into the um, contemporary period. But it is. The 19th century, though, is just, it's mystical in a way with eroticism. Yeah, and, and I share with you a, a love for for the the the, the messy, the, the 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 unfinished, the unresolved, the self-contradictory uh, texts. I mean, one of the reasons I, I did uh, enjoy teaching uh, Huckleberry Finn is because the ending is so frustrating and and problematic. And um, you know, the four pages that Toni Morrison has about Huckleberry Finn and playing with the dark is just so brilliant it, it it every time i read it i i, I can't get over um you know how how important how, how how good it is um and um you know i mean that's the other thing with with, with poe i've been doing a lot of work recently with tim i don't know if you know um the narrative of arthur gordon pym poe's only novel um yeah, not very well. Yeah, uh, so no, go uh, ahead. I mean, it's 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 a it's a very problematic text in 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 a lot of ways, but it certainly had an influence on Melville and, and a lot of other people. And um, you know, th there's there's a, there's homoeroticism. There's um, there's there's an awful lot going on. I, I've been looking at it because because my recent interest has been in animals and literature. I've been just looking at the roles that 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 uh, that birds play in the text, and um, it's it's very interesting because Poe, um, particularly at the end of the novel, is emphasizing blackness versus whiteness. So that um, there is this island salal where everything, including the animals, even the eggs, are black. Meanwhile, the the Europeans who come in and and Pip has joined them after being after being shipwrecked. Everything that they have, their white sails, their white eggs, uh, flour, uh, completely freaks out these the Salalians and. Um, but the language of the people of Salal is actually based on the birds. 
either the all white birds or the all black birds. So, um, you know, it's, it's just fascinating to me how, um, you know, when you, again, you, you bring different things to bear on certain literary texts and you oftentimes are rewarded in fascinating uh, ways. Yeah, I mean, I'm also such a huge fan of ancient Greek literature. And um, well, as you probably know, John, I'm just such a fan of um, reception studies and just this passing down of like what you've articulated of even the author's inheritance. Like you're saying now, Melville being inspired by Poe, like that to me has always just fascinated even myself as a reader and as a writer is just what we are surrounded by. And I mean, my introduction to Poe, it's actually very timely that I'm visiting my parents right now because my middle school is literally right down the street. I walked to it. It's in the, de it's in the development I grew up in, in New Jersey. And I read Poe in middle school. Like I really vividly remember the fall of the house of Usher. I think that was one of our first, it was that the pit and the pendulum, the black hat, and I think the cask of Amontala, I'm, ah, I'm going to say it wrong. Uh, you could say it for me, John. Amontala. Thank you. Um, so Poe was always, like you've said, it is accessible to middle schoolers, but there's also that gothic aspect to it that then I wanted to look into, okay, well, what writers were inspired by Poe? Then I discovered Anne Rice's interview with the vampires. Then I saw Dracula by Bram Stoker. And that to me is just how I like to read is I'll even pick up um, public libraries magazine book page and see, oh, okay, that's what that writer recommends. Oh, okay. That's what is on their list. Like, there's so many who reach out to me, John, who say they use this podcast and I love it. I hope more too, they use it as a book club. They'll say, oh, okay, that guest talked about that. I'm adding it to my list. And I mean, I'm such a huge fan of libraries. And my mom would always take me once a week. It was always once a week, starting from the age of maybe four or three, I would get to always pick out um, a book or pick out a audiobook at that uh, age and just make my way around the whole library. I remember when I made it to Stephen King in the adult section with Carrie, which was why Carrie's always going to have a special place in my heart because I was um, facing bullying for my artistic theater passion when I was in middle school. I was uh, doing ballet and musical theater and I discovered Carrie and the whole bullying narrative and isn't that though what makes, to me, that's what we do as literature scholars. It's about always going back to our roots, like going back to what made us so infatuated with this art form. Oh yes, yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, and once you, once these connections you know, some of them are, are undeniable. Some of them are very obvious. Uh, you mentioned in your email the, the presentation I made on um, Stephen King and Poe. I mean, King did in the in the 70s, he wrote, rewrote the, the Telltale Heart. He entitled it The Old Dude's Ticker. And so it was kind of fascinating to, to compare the two of them. 
Um, it's not a great story, but actually King did two different versions of it because um, in, in 2010, he did a, a much more sanitized version for a, a big read for Edgar Allan Poe. So it was really kind of fascinating to compare Poe's story to these two different versions of this pastiche that, uh, that King wrote of Poe. Um, but you know, I, I did something on, I don't know if you're familiar with Delia Owen's book, Where the Crawdads Sing. It was oh, a yes. big, staggeringly popular book. And it was on the New York Times bestseller list for, you know, weeks and weeks, maybe even years. I mean, it really was 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 phenomenal. Um, but it was the kind of thing where I read it during the summer and I said, that's the gold book. That's Poe's The Gold Book, the setting. So many things line up perfectly with that. So, I mean... It, Sometimes it's obvious, but then sometimes it's just, oh my goodness, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I I never would have thought about that connection. But then, when you start to piece it together, she had to have had that in mind or or in the back of her head somewhere. Yeah, that's why I love when writers, contemporary writers, I love when they come on the show, John, because I always that's like one of my first questions is just, what is in your background? Like, what were you listening to? A lot of it for writers, myself included, it's the music. It's sometimes I'll put on disco because I need a certain energy. Sometimes <laughs> it's Broadway. Sometimes, trust me, with my dissertation, if I did not have Sirius XM radio or podcasts were not around, I don't know what would have happened. Um, but it Stephen King, to me, he taps into what Poe and so many writers they tap into. It's almost like when Alice Walker, I love when you had us read, but it's just such a beautiful essay in search of our mother's gardens. Um, that whole, like when she's trying to find Zora Neale Hurston's grave and this mission she has, like it's this instinct. She knows she needs to do justice to Zora's memory. And to me, like that's a type of organic creative instinct that you know, you're opening up about. There's something that is, we can't necessarily speak to it, but it's like, to me with Stephen King, it's a, it's the fairy tale gone wrong. That's what I love about Poe's um, The Mask of the Red Death. It could be a fairy tale, right? It's almost like Beauty and the Beast, but then, oh no, <laughs> you know, the Black Death is entered. Like things are, this is not going to end well in the castle. And that's what I love about Carrie. It's, the reverse Cinderella. Like there's something, it's it's very Northrop Fry, right? About uh, mythological criticism. There's something to the Wizard of Oz, why that speaks to us. It's like fairy tales, Gothic, horror. They're all kind of in that imaginative. Well, I will always remember you helped me through my oral exam without knowing it, John, which was what did what does Hawthorne's definition of romance mean? And it's the where the um imaginary and the actual me. And like that to me is what makes that's literature like that's what makes good literature is it has to do both. You know. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved recently by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. 
The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of the homepage. And if you have any questions, email publisher Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. You know, when I was, when I was doing that work on King and Poe, um, there was a DVD made of this, the presentation that King made at a, 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 a public library in uh, Florida. Uh, about an hour so south of Sarasota. This was after King had had that severe car accident and he was still recuperating. Oh. And so he he was interviewed and then he and then he read this, you know, polished or or I should say um, edited or or censored version of of the story that he had written, which has all sorts of profanity and 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 dated uh, slang in it from from the 1970s. But he, he told this story about being in a, a grocery store in that area. And a woman came up to him in the grocery store, an older woman, and she said, I know who you are. You're that man who writes all those nasty books. And he said, "Well, uh, you know, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm, you know, what you know? What books do you like to read?" She said, "Now, how about the Green Mile? Now, that's a really good story." And King said, "Well, I wrote the Green Mile." That is hilarious. Oh my goodness. Well, no, that's well, and I'm just so glad like you're doing, you know, like the word mentor to me, John, is exactly. Like, even though it could seem stuffy to people, like this conversation is so emblematic of it. It's that, like what you've passed down to me, you know, what so many lessons you've taught me. It's that carrying on, oh, you could do Stephen King with Poe work or why influence studies is so interesting. And again, I just want to thank you for this conversation, for your mentorship, for our continued discussions, it's it's truly inspiring. And it's what makes me love, like we're going back to the beginning of this conversation, but this is why I went to get a PhD in English. It's because of the energy in a conversation like this, of all the topics that can be brought to bear. Well, if anybody is going to succeed in the role of a public humanities scholar, or how did you put it earlier as a academic talk show host? It's going to be <laughs> Andrew Rimby. Well, thank you, John. Um, yeah, academic talk show host. Okay, I know. I'm like academic entrepreneur. I kind of like the talk show host. I think <laughs> we'll go in, let's go in that vein now. Um, but it's just been so wonderful. There's so many texts that have been discussed on this 
show with you that I hope everyone out there, if they're like still in need of summer reading, there's, you know, I think anything is a beach read. Uh, you know, bring the Iliad to the beach. Why not? Um, I used to bring, I'll bring anything to the beach. Um, you know, especially if you want to work out. Homer is a good uh, candidate, but I really just love everything you're doing. Um, in the show notes, I put the links um, to John's work, especially uh, if you could say the title again of your animal studies book. Yeah, the one that's out is called Animals in the American Classics, How Natural History Inspired Great Fiction. That's uh, Texas A&M University Press, um, 2022. It's, it's hardcover. It's only $38. It's a remarkably heavy book. It's so heavy because it has 120 illustrations, 90 of which are color, you know, beautiful um, illustrations of, of, of animals, photographs and sketches uh, of animals. There'll be a companion volume to that probably out next year called um, Animals in Classic American Poetry, How Natural History Inspired Great Verse. Um, 12 essays in the fiction one, 10 essays in the in the poetry one. And then the other book that came out last year was a biography of the African-American writer and Baptist minister Sutton Griggs, a literary life of Sutton E. Griggs, uh, The Man on the Firing Line. And that's Oxford University Press, 2022. 2022. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And anything, will we see some Stephen King work, John? I don't know. I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll see. I mean, one thing that's coming out in October is an issue of, of the journal Post Studies. Um, and it's it, I, I co-edited a, a, a special topic, uh, African-American writers respond to Poe. So there are um, there are interviews and original pieces, poetry, short stories, personal essays, from create African-American creative writers. And then there are four essays about African-American, written by African-American scholars about African-American writers responding in some way to Poe. So that's, that, that was, that's been a wonderful project and I'm really looking forward to that coming out. Oh, wonderful. Okay, well, brings, I'm ready. I'm excited. It brings, to, for... it brings together two of the, you know, two of my major interests, you know, Edgar Allan Poe and African-American literature. And, and uh, you know, I, I think, um, well, I don't know. I don't know if African-American writers need Poe, but they've definitely been inspired by him and have responded to him. But definitely Poe stays needs uh, African-American readers, African-American writers. Oh, wonderful. Well, and I also want to uh, second John's recommendation of playing in the dark. I think it is one of the most well-written critical, literary critical pieces I've ever read. I will hold Toni Morrison to that pedestal. Um, it is just so beautifully done. So like everyone out there who hasn't read playing in the dark, because John, there are many in um, English departments and I'll mention playing in the dark and they've never read it. And I'm like, okay, you need to read it like right now. Um, so I remember when you, again, you taught me that you exposed me to it. So it's that passing down of, oh no, add that text to your studies. Um, so again, everyone get your hands on John's work. 
Um, I know I'm going to be in conversation with John a lot. And this has just been wonderful. Again, I love all my guests, John, here on the podcast, but it's not all the time that I get to be with someone who has just truly shaped my career. And again, I want to second, not second, but I want to highlight and amplify how wonderful it's been to have been exposed to your work, but also had the pleasure to be one of your students. So thank you for that, John. Well, right back at you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And everyone out there, you know, hopefully you came away from this uh, episode with maybe understanding why you would go right now to get a PhD in English. I think there's... (laughs) The the jury's out, but there are different avenues. Okay. Bye, John, and bye, everyone out there. Bye, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the host and director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor and host of True Crime and Academia. Please, if you're not, make sure that you follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok, too. Remember our TikTok. That's where all the exciting video clips are posted. Make sure that you join our Patreon if you want more Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia content. All the video Interviews are on our Patreon. All of our bonus episodes are on Patreon. And it just means so much for you to join for $5 a month. You unlock all of our bonus episodes. And also, it just helps support the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you so much for giving Mary and I a needed jolt of caffeine for coffee. Thanks for the $5. Head to patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We cannot wait for you all to listen to our summer season. There are so many exciting episodes. And we're also celebrating three years of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. So without further ado, thanks for listening. Make sure you listen to the next episode next week. And have a wonderful summer season, everyone. Okay, bye now.